You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 28th of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Hello, this is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead, Israel and Hamas have extended the pause in fighting for two more days. We'll have the latest from Jerusalem. Then... There has to be a political solution, and frankly, it has to be some version of the two-state solution. Mary Robinson, Chair of the Elders, former President of Ireland and UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, discusses possible solutions to conflict in the Middle East. A diplomatic spat has broken out over the Parthenon statues as the British Prime Minister cancels his meeting with his Greek counterpart. We'll hear all about the Marrakesh Film Festival, have a rustle through the day's papers and a roundup of business news. Plus... For a nation that prides itself on its stability and banking prowess, the collapse of Credit Suisse in March caused blushes before the bank's state-orchestrated takeover by UBS. We'll hear all about Switzerland's soft power. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. North Korea has successfully launched its first reconnaissance satellite, which it said was designed to monitor US and South Korean military movements. A winter storm's lashed central and southern Ukraine, killing at least five people and three in neighbouring Moldova, with snow and high winds knocking out power to hundreds of towns and villages and shutting highways. And a Virgin Atlantic passenger jet flying from London to New York, powered by 100% sustainable aviation fuel will take off today as the aviation world seeks to showcase the potential of low carbon options to secure its future. Do stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, the four-day pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas, which was initially due to come to an end yesterday, has been extended by another two days, allowing for more prisoners to be exchanged and more aid to flow into Gaza. I'm joined now by the journalist Hannah McCarthy, who's been covering the war from Jerusalem since the conflict began. Hannah, many thanks for joining us. Can you tell us the details on this extension of the deal? What was Qatar's role? Sure. So Qatar has been playing a really important kind of interlocutor role uh, for one main reason, which is that Hamas... under U.S. legislation and EU legislation is deemed a terrorist organization. So the U.S. cannot uh, directly contact Hamas. So instead, uh, Qatar has a political office that was set up about a decade ago um, for Hamas, and it's used as basically a conduit for these negotiations. Uh, So it's played an important role in terms of navigating these negotiations. Uh, We've got some good news yesterday that this four-day truce uh, has been extended. It was supposed to uh, end at this time right now, but instead there's another two days. What we've heard is that Hamas uh, was kind of looking for four days. It says there's 40 hostages it can exchange. Uh, you know, what then we heard from Israel is that they wanted a day-by-day approach. Uh, and so what we got is some sort of compromise, which is two days. So 20 hostages will be released uh, for 60 Palestinian prisoners. Is the door open to extend beyond these extra two days? I mean, perhaps for as long as there are hostages? 
Well, I think there's definitely some good, strong grounds for another two-day truce based on the fact that Hamas was offering uh, 40 hostages in four days. So, you know, there's obviously been issues with whether they've been able to locate hostages. So I think there's good um, good signs that they have 40 hostages, that if Israel is open to agreeing that truce, that those hostages can be provided um, in return. At the same time, uh, Netanyahu, you know, one of the reasons he brought his war cabinet along with this hostage release deal was because he said, we will go back to this war, we will go back to you know striking Hamas in Gaza. Uh, and definitely there will be elements of his war cabinet that will be keen to continue the war. At the same time, we're seeing, you know, very emotional scenes of families being reunited with loved ones who were kept captive in Gaza. And there's real pressure in Israeli society to keep that up. So Israel says that there are three goals for this war, eliminating Hamas, returning all hostages and ensuring that Gaza doesn't become a threat to the state of Israel again. So it's clear the minute the hostages are released, Israel is determined to continue the onslaught. So will Hamas be trying to string out the release for as long as possible? So we we definitely you know know that this oppor- this ta- this pause is being used as an opportunity to regroup. Uh, you know there's negotiations going on behind the scenes. So far we understand that the, the maximum that this truce could last, including the last four day truce, is ten days. Uh, but beyond that, there has to be you know some broader political solution, and we it's not clear that we kind of see that yet happening. At the same time, we're seeing some clear signals, you know, from the EU and and even from the US uh, that, you know, there is uh, not an appetite to continue with the kind of civilian casualties we've seen. Uh, At the same time, you know, it's very clear, you know, very few governments have said it's acceptable for Hamas to continue in control of the Gaza. You know, there have been some kind of, you know, not very serious conversations about, you know, allowing Hamas leaders to leave the Gaza Strip, you know, would they go to Iran, would they go somewhere else? You know, these aren't, you know, maybe part of the mainstream negotiations yet, but there's definitely some negotiations about, you know, what could a political solution look like as well in terms of who governs the Gaza Strip after, in terms of, you know, the Palestinian Authority taking over or an international coalition. Mm. You talked about joyful reunions of Israeli hostages. Do we know how they were treated by their captors? Yeah, so we're, we've got some reports about the kind of conditions they were kept in. You know, they were kept in the tunnels uh, and actually together, you know, in kind of you know, the, the people we've seen that have been released have said they were kind of kept together with other Israeli hostages. Um, food, they were fed. You know, there was there was often just one meal a day. Um, there was toilets, but often they had to wait. Um, there was some, you know, radios present. So some of them found news, that, um, found out about, you know, what had happened to their loved ones by radio reports. Others were completely isolated and have just, you know, found out that friends or family members were killed after they were released. Um, so broadly speaking, I think some of the, the kind of the fears that many families would have had about how their relatives were treated in Gaza have not come through. At the same time, it's an incredibly traumatic experience, particularly for the children who were separated from their families, you know, for five weeks. Mm. And and who are the Palestinians being released by Israel? And is there any feedback about their treatment? Sure. So um, the Palestinian prisoners being exchanged are children and women. Uh, and it's, again, it's worth noting, we've kind of heard about the role of the Red Cross uh, in both the hostage releases in Gaza, uh, where you know they've been escorting the hostages from um, um, to the Israeli border. At the same time, the Red Cross also has a role, uh, you know, in terms of going into Israeli uh, prisons and checking on Palestinian prisoners because uh, they are prisoners in an occupied territory. They have not been allowed to do that role since the 7th of October. We've gotten some 
um, very worrying reports um, about four Palestinian prisoners being killed since the 7th of October, uh, food and water being denied. Uh, many of the Palestinian prisoners we uh, or children we saw released said they had no idea what was happening in Gaza. They had no um, contact or they had no kind of contact with the outside world. Their families didn't know what was happening to them uh, and they had no news. Uh, and, you know, we've definitely seen reports that some were beaten, uh, you know, since the start of the war. I've been getting some quite worrying videos of uh, Palestinian prisoners being, you know, bound kind of naked and beaten. Um, but again, we're seeing some very, you know, again, heartwarming videos of families being reunited in the West Bank, in East Jerusalem, um, you know, with you know their children and um, female family members after quite long periods apart. The UN says that the amount of aid going into Gaza is woefully inadequate. What more do we know about the humanitarian situation? I, I just spoke with someone in the UN um, this morning who had been doing some of the aid runs up to the north and they just described it as the Wild West. Uh, it is incredibly difficult to get aid up to the northern part of the Gaza Strip. Uh, they got their first delivery of water since the beginning of the war on Sunday, which I think underscores how bad the situation is there. Uh, many of the people who you know wouldn't have left would have been you know older people or disabled people. Um, it's clear that, you know, and actually there's concerns from Hamas. They believe there's being kind of, you know, deliberate delays in the aid getting up to the northern strip. But I, I think the kind of more broader point is that, practically speaking, the roads uh, are destroyed, the infrastructure is destroyed. It's very hard to have normal supply routes uh, in the Gaza Strip at the moment because of the level of destruction. And you cannot clear roads uh, or, or, you know, improve these kind of supply routes in, in kind of four days or six days or, you know, even 10 days. Mm. And, and Hannah, I know that this is a very difficult question, but when this pause in fighting ends, what will the next stage look like? Uh, I mean, there's there's all sorts of scenarios that could happen. And again, this is a war where I don't think anyone's going to take anything for granted. I think, you know, from a from a civilian casualty perspective, the worst case scenario is that, you know, the war, you know, comes fully to the southern part of the Gaza Strip. There's already been airstrikes on the Gaza Strip. There's already people who have died in areas that were kind of deemed uh, safe uh, and that the Israeli, Israelis told Gazans to evacuate to. Uh, if they take the war to the southern Gaza Strip, it's clear that it's going to be an incredibly uh, tricky military operation. It is an incredibly densely populated uh, land strip at the moment, even more so than before the war, uh, and trying to engage in warfare when there is so many civilians concentrated in one area uh, will no doubt have high civilian casualties. And whether the international community has the appetite to continue supporting Israel, if that is the case, uh, remains to be seen. Uh, and at the same time, is if it if it if Israel chooses not to use airstrikes because of the uh, civilian population there, it's going to be facing a very tricky form of military combat where it's going into densely populated areas. Uh, you know, urban warfare that we know uh, you know is not maybe its uh, strongest point. Uh, so there's going to be a, a lot of I think. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of internal debates happening in both Hamas and Israel now about you know, how that kind of war is waged. Hannah, thank you very much indeed. That was journalist Hannah McCarthy speaking to us from Jerusalem. This is The Globalist. As we've been discussing, pressure is mounting to help end the ongoing Israel-Hamas conflict permanently. But how can a peaceful solution realistically be achieved for both Israel and Palestine? 
Well, earlier, Monocle's Andrew Muller sat down with Mary Robinson, an Irish politician who formerly served as the first female president of Ireland and as UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. President Robinson is also the current chair of the Elders, an independent group of global leaders working for peace and justice. Andrew began by asking President Robinson about the group's open letter sent earlier this month, which called on Joe Biden to craft a vision for peace in the Middle East. Well, we did think a lot about sending a letter to President Biden. We'd had our board meeting in mid-October in London, uh, where all our elders were together. And we issued a statement at that time in which we called for a ceasefire. We condemned the horrendous attacks by Hamas. We also called for release of hostages and for the bombardment and siege to certainly either stop or be severely modified, that it was disproportionate. So we said all that. But what we felt was actually this military operation is without a plan. They don't know what comes after. And that's that's very serious. So we're looking to President Biden because of the role that the United States has played But the United States can no longer play that role alone. It needs to build a coalition for peace. So we want a vision for peace and a coalition for peace. Is there a feeling among you and the other elders that there might be a it's darkest before the dawn aspect to this? I mean, again, we are in the realms of considerable optimism given current circumstances. I think this is the darkest time. And part of the darkness is for the first time in a long number of years, Israel feels vulnerable. In our previous visits as elders with Jimmy Carter and Rue Brundtland, we were aware of the uh, difference between the power on the Israeli side and the support of the United States for Israel and the lack of power on the Palestinian side, if I could put it that way. Now, after those horrendous attacks and the taking of so many hostages, and I've spoken to some of the families who've had hostages taken, there, there is a real post 9-11 shock, a trauma, and also, you know, unfortunately and understandably, a very real alienation, particularly from Hamas, and even finding it hard to see the ordinary civilian population in Gaza as human beings. Uh, You know, there's almost a sense they deserve what's happening to them, uh, which is really very worrying. But I think that vulnerability opens up to say, look, there has to be a political solution. And frankly, It has to be some version of the two-state solution. There is no other possibility except one state, which would not be a Jewish state. On the prospect of a political solution, do you think after October 7th it can or should still involve Hamas? You mentioned President Carter, and you you will remember that I think in about 2014 you and he wrote an essay together advocating that Hamas should be recognised as a legitimate political actor. And granted that they were elected after a fashion, though that was some time ago now, but did their behaviour on October 7th not put them beyond the pale in terms of being people that can be incorporated into a political process? Well, certainly the actions of the armed side, the brigade side of Hamas were horrendous and there is no excuse and they were war crimes. And hopefully uh, there will be accountability apart from trying to have the accountability of killing, that there would be a justice accountability. I would like to see a role for the the International Criminal Court in war crimes on both sides. But to your point, uh, it is difficult to see Hamas playing a role. It's also difficult to see Hamas not playing a role because they are embedded in that community. 
They administer that community. They won elections in that community, even if those are faulty elections. I, I gather it is certainly true that before the 7th of October, the administration of Hamas in Gaza was very unpopular. There hasn't been an election in the whole on either side with Fatah or Hamas for a long number of years. So it's a weak system, if I could put it that way. I find it difficult to believe that it would not be possible to incorporate some element of the more administrative side of Hamas. Um, certainly the brigade side, which committed those horrific acts, um, clearly ruled themselves out of any recognition at all. Uh, I say this because we listened as elders uh, to four different experts, uh, including Daniel Levy. And that was his view that Hamas has its two sides. And uh, the problem is it has not been able to take responsibility of governing um, in a recognized way. And then it has become uh, more autocratic and more inclined to expose its people as it's done. I mean, this was a deliberate act. Hamas must have known what the consequences would be, which were and are horrific for the civilian population. I just want to go back to something you were saying, because it does seem to me to be the conundrum at the heart of a lot of peacemaking and or reconciliation, that thought that we can't possibly deal with these dreadful people, but we can't possibly not deal with these dreadful people. Is that a dynamic that to you, for all the differences in the two situations, does seem quite familiar from Ireland in the 1990s? Yes, there is some familiarity, and you're right, the situation between Israel and uh, Palestine is much more complicated, you know, much more difficult. But there was the IRA and Sinn Féin, and there still is the IRA and Sinn Féin. There was a lot of dispute about how thick the barrier between those two organisations was. Yes, and I got very criticised when I went to West Belfast at the as president at the invitation of a number of local community groups. But I knew I would meet Jerry Adams. That was necessary because he was a local politician. He was a hero to many of the people that I would be meeting. And I shook his hand and got really criticized by the media, but got a lot of popular, I think, on a poll the following Sunday in a Sunday newspaper, which was criticizing me. 90-something percent of the Irish people said I'd done the right thing. So as Nelson Mandela said, who brought the elders together that I'm chair of, you make friends with your enemies, not your friends. You reach out to your enemies. And that's why I think this idea of a vision and a coalition for peace is so important. Both sides, both Israelis and Palestinians, need security now. Both need a kind of supportive coalition, hopefully even a good mediator, as George Mitchell played a superb role in Northern Ireland over a long number of years. I remember a loyalist, former loyalist sort of gunman, basically, who'd come over to the peace side, coming to see me with schoolchildren in Arasanukthron, um, late on when uh, George Mitchell had made a lot of progress. It was the year before 9-11, because I finished in September mm. 1997. And I asked Billy, and I said, how has George Mitchell got so far? And he said, oh, President, he listened us out. <laughs> that is very true. He listened us out. I mean, aside from that potential role of a mediator, and it would be quite the challenge for anybody willing to take it on, but are, are there other lessons from 
the Irish experience that you think might be exportable to the Middle East? I mean, for all that Northern Ireland's peace ha- you know, since 1998 has been messy and imperfect and compromised these last 25 years, it is certainly an improvement on the decades beforehand. Are there any lessons that could be usefully learned? I think there are some lessons. Uh, some of them might seem strange, but I was very aware of the way in which women came out from those um, housing estates, uh, Republican and loyalist housing estates, and met each other. The men were not meeting each other, they were fighting. But the women said, we've had enough. We don't want this kneecapping, we don't want this violence. And they sort of waged peace. And then it was a woman's uh, party that was very responsible for some of the best elements in the Good Friday Agreement, the human rights elements, um, and the listening to victims in, in the Good Friday Agreement. So, yes, there are, there are lessons. And I, I think in particular, if we can center the victims on both sides now, because I really feel very strongly for the Israeli families and those that the elders met by Zoom, uh, they described, you know, members of the family who had been killed and then children or elderly relatives taken away. And just the, the sheer, you know, horror of that for a family and for a community. So we, we, we need to learn across that we mustn't take a partisan side. Some of the marching for the Palestinian cause is too partisan for me. And we need to be on the side of both. And that's where the elders are. The status quo before the 7th of October is not sustainable. It has to be forged as a very serious effort for the first time with real coalition behind it. And even in the short term, I think that would influence the steps that would be taken. Are you confident, though, that people would be willing to participate in this this coalition, as you put it? Because certainly the last few administrations of the United States, give or take the Jared Kushner put peace plan, which everybody sort of seemed to agree to forget about in a matter of minutes after it was published, there's been a reluctance to get involved uh, in this because for fairly obvious reasons. Nothing ever seems to work and nobody ever thanks you. I think, you know, to a fault, um, the United States never really entered in as an honest broker. It was always too much a pro on the Israeli side. It never saw sufficiently the erosion of trust because of the uh, constant uh, planned encircling that was going on to el- eliminate the possibility of a two-state solution right through the Oslo Accords. And it's just got much worse under a right-wing government, and now it's surged um, in a very dangerous way. I'm very worried about what's happening in the West Bank at the moment. You know, the attention is understandably on Gaza and the humanitarian utter crisis there. But the West Bank, you know, is 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 on the edge. I think, and we have to be very worried about that. But ultimately, there's nobody that really can serve as a broker here, honest or otherwise, than the United States. Is there anybody else that both sides would take sufficiently seriously? I think you're right. I think that's why we wrote to uh, President Biden. The United States is essential, but it has to be in partnership with a broader coalition in order to be more of an honest broker. That was the former president of Ireland, Mary Robinson, speaking to Monocle's Andrew Muller. Now, still to come on the programme, the Marrakesh International Film Festival is underway.
Welcome to this 20th edition, which promises to be intense in emotions and sharing. Come on a cinematic journey that transcends borders, celebrates diversity and exchange and captures the essence of Marrakesh's unique charm. We'll find out why Morocco's film industry is booming and why the mood at this year's festival is notably different. This is The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. continue now with today's newspapers and joining me in the studio is Tina Fordham who's a geopolitical strategist and founder of Fordham Global Insights. Good morning to you Tina. Good morning. Now we've been talking of course about Israel and Hamas uh, and we'll continue on that theme because there's been uh, something of a state visit by somebody who doesn't run a country but might as well do, uh, Elon Musk. Tell us more. Well, I thought this, the symbolism, if not the the actual fact of this uh, neo-state visit, uh, as I see it, was remarkable. Elon Musk has been in hot water over uh, allegations um, from the uh, Anti-Defamation League and, and others about promoting anti-Semitism and conspiracy theories on, on X, formerly known as Twitter, and to to have been invited and met with the Prime Minister and the President of, of Israel in the last couple of days and almost being taken on an educational tour um, strikes me as something almost unprecedented and um, underscores his influence with Starlink, uh, which has been so instrumental in the conflict in Ukraine and, and also potentially with communications uh, in Israel and uh, in the Palestinian territories. Um, one wonders how he how he processes all of this, given his kind of, you know, flippant, to say the least, um, approach to, to geopolitics. Um, but I don't recall ever having seen anything like this. Mm. I mean, I see his latest tweet this morning was he said something like I know it sounds trite but all I want is world peace. Yes and and I, I, I you know I do believe someone who's, who lives inside geopolitics day in and day out you know I, I use the word flippant for a reason. He does sound a bit like Miss America in only wanting world peace but it's almost like a, he doesn't understand the power of his platform. So, you know, let's see how his kind of unfettered attitude toward free speech, as he calls it, um, evolves uh, after this. You mentioned Star, Starlight, Starlink, which, of course, is his satellite, which enables uh, Wi-Fi to work in, in various parts. What are the plans for that system then in the area? Did that come under discussion? It was discussed, um, and there were some discussions about um, allowing its use in the Palestinian territories for the delivery of, of aid and everything else. But 
uh, you know, again, the regulation um, and uh, the use of this technology, which is fundamentally, you know, security and defense, uh, as well as communications, is something that is outside of, of you know, government policy, international law parameters. Mm. Let's move on now to China. Uh, and the FT has a really disturbing story about destruction of mosques, something that really wasn't on my radar until now. First of all, the story is worth a look at because it's a visual um, assessment of sites where there have been mosques, not only in uh, Muslim Xinjiang, where there are, are Turkic Chinese Muslims, a minority that has been persecuted and um, many Western countries are pressuring China to uh, improve the human rights situation, but elsewhere. And so the, the mosques in many cases appear to have been modified with minarets being turned into pagodas uh, and this sort of thing, which you can see from this incredible piece of visual journalism. And to me, it's an example of how during a time of, of global chaos and volatility, um, countries can also find more space to to carry out their policies, uh, you know, below the radar, uh, as it were. So at a time when, you know, hostility and tensions with China have ramped up, and again, pressure on the human rights record, you know, there are dozens of mosques that have been eliminated or modified in this way. Mm. Uh, and uh, of course, we know about the repression of the Muslim Uyghurs in China, but this is showing that it's much, much more widespread. It does look like an, an attempt to, um, how do you say, not, not to eliminate, but to um, recast, you know, Chineseify uh, the, the Muslim minority, which has existed in, in this part of the world um, for centuries. Mm. Uh, to Niger now, uh, and a story about how the junta there won't restrain northward migration. Tell us more. This is this is an example of a story that I think everybody would miss and and not necessarily connect to day to day politics here in Europe. But uh, after the coup in Niger, one of six in West Africa and the Sahel in the, in the past six months, the junta have um, decided to overturn uh, the previous government's um, ban on people smuggling. Uh, the difficulty the difficulty comes for European governments where anti-immigration populism has been a very powerful lightning rod for public opinion. Uh, and um, one can only expect that the numbers of migrants, not only from Niger, but via Niger uh, into European countries is going to increase. And let's not forget that um, it's recently, or just last week, uh, Russia was accused of uh, flooding Finland with um, illegal migrants from um, from Africa and the Middle East. Uh, you know, sort of using migration as a as a weapon, and it's a powerful one, mm, a very powerful one indeed. Now, uh, Reuters is reporting on how the German budget crisis will transform the economy. Yeah, this this to me is a, is a is a political economy story. Um, it's the kind of thing whereby, you know, one observes that the German constitu constitutional court uh, keeps the government in check by not allowing it to over borrow. Bearing in mind that Germany has a budget deficit, sixty six percent of debt to GDP, which is, you know, remarkably restrained. The European or the eurozone average is seventy um, percent, but this has blown a huge hole in German government finances. 
and um, caused a giant headache for the government. And again, bearing in mind that the um, the centrist parties in Germany are under huge pressure, again, in part due to migration, and they're having to enforce an austerity budget um, during a time of slow growth and after a couple of decades of already um, underinvestment in, in public services. So the headline kind of um, <laughs> fails to convey uh, the extent of of the shock that this will be, and also the I think the political implications, because what the German government had wanted to do was to redirect some unused pandemic um, funds for the green transition, and now that can't happen. Mm, and of course, this also has implications for Ukraine. Yes, it'll also affect um, a, a aid to Ukraine, which is already under pressure, um, particularly in the U.S. as we as we head into uh, elections coming next year. Tina, thank you very much indeed. That was Tina Fordham there. Now, here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. North Korea has successfully launched its first reconnaissance satellite, which it said was designed to monitor US and South Korean military movements. The United Nations ambassadors of the US and North Korea sparred at the Security Council on Monday over Pyongyang's launch, which violates sanctions for ballistic missile and nuclear programs. A winter storm lashed central and southern Ukraine, killing at least five people and three in neighbouring Moldova, with snow and high winds knocking out power to hundreds of towns and villages and shutting highways. The extreme weather struck as tens of thousands of troops manned frontline positions in the 21-month-old war with Russia amid fears Moscow could attack the power grid with airstrikes this winter. And a Virgin Atlantic passenger jet flying from London to New York, powered by 100% sustainable aviation fuel, will take off today as the aviation world seeks to showcase the potential of low-carbon options to secure its future. Airlines are banking on fuel made from waste to reduce their emissions by up to 70%, enabling them to keep operating before electric and hydrogen-powered air travel become a reality in the decades to come. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Greek Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis is in London this week and was meant to be meeting the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and the leader of the opposition. On the eve of the visit, he said that talks over a possible return of the British Museum's Parthenon sculptures to Athens have not advanced quickly enough. Well, this prompted Sunak to cancel the meeting, and now the diplomatic spat has deepened. The sculptures are often referred to as the Elgin marbles. The 75 metres of Parthenon frieze were removed by diplomat Lord Elgin in the early 19th century, when he was ambassador to the Ottoman Empire, then ruling Greece. Well, joining me in the studio is Constantine Buhea, who's an author and a Greece expert. Constantine, lovely to have you back here. Why did Sunak cancel this meeting? What led up to it? Uh, one word, and that word is stolen. Um, there was going to be a straightforward talk meeting between Mitsotakis and the Prime Minister, uh, Sunak, talking about Gaza, Ukraine, clim- uh, climate crisis and all that. And then he went on the BBC for an interview on Sunday, and he said that the marbles had been stolen. Now, there's a well-trodden path 
uh, of Greek governments, starting with the, the Prime Minister George Papandreou, where he has said it's not a question of being stolen, it is just a question of parts missing from the marbles at the Acropolis Museum in Athens. Not stolen, parts missing. And this well-trodden path and genteel talk and understanding between the governments uh, was blown apart when the Greek Prime Minister said they are stolen. And how can you negotiate with someone whom you accuse of having stolen something of, uh, that belongs to you? So, I mean, how has Mitsotakis then responded to this meeting being cancelled really at the 11th hour? And what does it mean for diplomatic ties between the countries? Um, it was not an official meeting. He came, uh, Mitsotakis came here because the, the, it's the Greek trade delegation meeting with the British investors. Um, and as part of a, as a, as a form of courtesy, um, it, there's a meeting with the British Prime Minister. Um, Mitsotakis said this is unacceptable, basically, that's what he said. Uh, and he said there's no... Um, if, I'm looking at the Greek text here, he says, um, one should never be afraid of facing up to, to debate and if, or he used the word confrontation. So he was pretty miffed. And what I thought was going to be a pretty straightforward story this morning has turned out to be a major diplomatic uh, confrontation. Because this is more about politics and not really culture, isn't it? Um, it has turned so, yes. And there was no need for it to turn in such a way. Uh, Mitsotakis is... is, is has deservedly won the string of elections in Greece. His popularity has increased. But then there seems to be lacking an institutional memory within the Greek establishment, within the Greek government, um, that, that, that would inform Mitsotakis what can and cannot be said. The thing is that he took it personally, this uh, reunification of the Parthenon marbles. He took it uh, from his party as a party political thing, forgetting that there are previous governments and previous prime ministers who, who, who have been who have contributed to the understanding between Greece and Britain. You don't say stolen, that's basically mm. it. I mean, do Greek people really care that much about this issue? <laughs> um, when you mention it to them, then yes, they care. When it is not mentioned... No, there are far more important key issues that they that, that they worry about um, that, that, than um, the, these um, precious uh, sculptures at the British Museum. Mm. So, what is the current legal situation with the marbles? Who actually owns them, and what does British law say about this? Why is is there this block on 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 giving them back? Um, well, the law. Uh, was um, I think was established in 1963 in the United Kingdom, uh, and uh, it basically stated that uh, objects from the British Museum uh, cannot be separated from the British Museum. Um, therefore, but what, what keeps going backwards and forwards is this is a matter for the British government to decide whether the Parthenon marbles are to go to Greece. And then some people, and then at times they say, well, no, it's not a question of the government, it's the British Museum. And the ball keeps bouncing between the two of them. Mm. Well, George Osborne's currently chairman of the, of the museum's trustees. He does have a compromise. I mean, he thinks they could be loaned. What, why, what's the hold up on that? Uh, it's a fantastic deal. Uh, basically, Britain uh, gives the mar loans the marbles to, to Greece, presumably in perpetuity, and then the British Museum can go to Greece and pick any object it likes from the Greek museums and organise 
exhibitions here at the British Museum of world class. It was a superb uh, deal. However, the question is returning, wrenching them out of the British Museum, if the Greeks will forgive me for using that expression, wrenching them out of the British Museum and sending them to Greece. It, it, it's, a, it's a huge psychological step and one which many fear will set a precedent worldwide. Already, the debate, the old debate of the return of the marbles um, has prompted uh, barristers and lawyers and human rights groups throughout the world for arguing successfully for return of specific museum pieces to their countries of origin. Mm. Uh, and, and just finally, I mean, what, what does this mean for the future relationship between Greece and the UK? I think that the, 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 the relationship is quite good. Um, it's, it's sort of solid. Anodyne. <laughs> it's basically anodyne. And you cannot... Uh, there's nothing to... Um, nothing much to deteriorate. But this will stick. I mean, you cannot cancel, or obviously you can, uh, a meeting with a fellow prime minister on the 11th hour. This is huge news in Greece, and um, it will be remembered, I think. Constantine Beher, many thanks for joining us here on The Globalist. Thank you. in Marrakesh and 7.40 in London. On Friday, the Marrakesh International Film Festival begins, began and will run until next Saturday. It's one of the Arab world's largest film festivals and it's taking place just three months after an earthquake in Morocco and as protests sweep North Africa and the Middle East over the war in Gaza. The Cairo International Film Festival and Tunisia's Carthage Film Festival have cancelled their events due to the war. Well, I'm joined in the studio now by the very fragrant film critic and Monocle Radio regular Karen Krasanovich. Gorgeous perfume. What are you wearing? It's it's oud, actually, so how very appropriate. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Karen, have organisers addressed the issue of the Israel-Hamas situation and talked about why they have decided to proceed with this festival? In a, in a roundabout way, they have. They haven't addressed it directly. Everybody's very aware, along with the earthquake, as you mentioned. Um, they're saying that they're going to make the film festival, uh, which is a big event in Marrakesh, uh, a bastion of peace and and films showing different viewpoints and I think that's what they've really they really headed for and I think it's quite it's quite brave of them to do that but also um, just brings a little bit of interest to the area as well. Mm. And how has the conflict affected the mood? In a very strange way, security is higher. For example, there was a dinner where a lot of people were excluded, and there's there like scenes of can where people are getting barricaded off. And also, uh, they normally have a, a public screening in the iconic square, the Medina, and they haven't done that this mm. year. So I think there's been a lot more flinchiness and a lot more care taken. And what are some of the program highlights? Oh gosh, um, well they, you know, as as most film festivals later in the year, they're showing films that have been seen pretty much already. For example, but they opened with a great Venice hit, which we have yet to see here. Uh, Richard Linkletter's uh, 
the the hitman, not the killer, but the hitman. It is hilarious, and it's a great starter. They're also a very flashy jury. You've got Jessica Chastain wearing, I think, Balmain, I believe. Um, and and also the selection of the festival is there. There are more female directors uh, in competition than there are men. Um, and I know that the festival is also highlighting the work of the Moroccan director Fawzi Ben Saidi. I wonder if you could tell him tell us a little bit about him and his work. Well, he's if, when you see him, you think, oh, that guy. <laughs> Because he's also an actor. But um, he's, he's one of Morocco's most critically acclaimed directors. Um, he's at the festival all the time. And his latest film is a slapstick take on the Western genre. It's called Deserts. It has about two Casablanca debt collectors. You have me already at Casablanca <laughs> debt collectors. He has, a, he has a real dab hand at fast comedy. And he's, he's quite a popular guy. And the Atlas Workshop program, that's running alongside the festival. What what is that? That's been going, I think, since about 2018. Most festivals, the Berlin Alley, etc., will will have programs that are helping, supporting filmmakers with either um, developing projects or projects uh, that are ongoing. And this year, Scorsese was supposed to attend. And it's focused, it's only about three days, but uh, this would focus on uh, new talents from across that area of the world. But Scorsese has declined to attend for personal reasons since he also wasn't at the Gotham Awards last night. Mm. Uh, why? Uh, what is the state of the Moroccan film industry more generally? Oh, gosh. Well, Morocco's always been popular. Always. I mean, Lawrence of Arabia was shot there, Gladiator, Casablanca, Inception, and in fact, Gladiator 2 is now there, or heading there. Um, it's got wonderful light, it's got great locations, but it also has, and this is something a lot of lot of countries that want to be in the film, film industry don't understand, you need roads, you need transport, and you need crew. And Morocco's got all of that. It's got the great in- infrastructure, though. So is it giving Hollywood, uh, uh, Nollywood in Nigeria and Bollywood in India a bit of a run for their money? Well, there isn't really a domestic film market where there are in Nollywood and Bollywood, so not really. But it comes to locations and also that 30% tax incentive. Yeah, it's got them beat. Tell us a bit more about the Ooh, tax gosh. incentive. All right. <laughs> if, if you have a, certain, a film over a certain million uh, production costs, they will give you, within certain parameters... 30%, uh, they will they will give you tax incentive break. You'll get 30% off or back of your production spend. Extraordinary. Karen, you've been to many of these festivals all over the world. I've even been to Marrakesh. So there you go. <laughs> um, but, but how do they work then for the journalists that are there? Is it just a, a kind of constant <sighs> junket? Are you shuttled from movie to banquet? Yes, misery. It's complete misery. <laughs> uh, it is actually. It's a lot. I mean, usually choosing your shoes is the hardest thing about a film festival. This one, um, the, the Marrakesh Film Festival, is unique in that it's free to everybody. So if you want to go, you have to get you have to get a pass so they know you're there, but it's free to absolutely anybody, all takers. And that's wonderful. So there's going to be public screenings, there's gala screenings, retrospectives, uh, and also surprise screenings. And it's really great because you don't know who's going to show up. Mads Mikkelsen is there and, and Willem Dafoe and Tilda Swinton. So it can be quite a surprise festival, but you don't get any sleep. And there's a, a, a competition element to it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there, there are films in competition as well, and also sidebars for um, first-time and second-time directors. It's it's uh, pretty standard for most festivals to have that kind of of structure because festivals are about discovery, not only savouring what has already been passed. Absolutely. Karen, thank you very much indeed. That is Karen Krasanovich, uh, and this is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. 
over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. It's time now to talk business with Andrew Walker, who's a journalist and the former economics correspondent for the BBC World Service. Andrew, welcome back. Nice to be here. Uh, you're on a very funny low chair there. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think I'm. I think I've sorted that for a fashion. Let's talk about Tesla because yeah. there are a couple of stories going mm-hmm. on about Tesla's uh, industrial relations. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so tell court us case, what's going on. Court cases, in fact, um, about their industrial relations. Um, let's start with the case in the United States. Um, a US, well, rather than a court as such, so US Labour Board has um, rejected claims that Tesla had illegally fired employees for um, who were working on their autopilot software um, to try and put a stop to the union organisation. Now, this is a a familiar theme with Tesla. They really don't like the idea of of having to deal with unions. And in the the US, um, they were were on the receiving end of a complaint um, from uh, from a union um, who felt that some of their members were being fired simply because of um, uh, of their union activity. Well, that's been rejected. but you know the, the the pressure on 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 Tesla from its workers to um, in some places to um, to recognise unions does continue, um, and one place where that's been going on, another place where that's been going on is Sweden. Now there, um, Tesla has got into some difficulty because, as a result of postal workers declining to deliver registration plates. Um, which which were given which would be um, coming from the Swedish um, Transport Authority, um, Tesla was unable to register new vehicles, and so they have taken the Transport Authority to court, um, alleged, claiming that they have an absolute legal duty to provide them with the registration plates. Um, and there are some reports in the Swedish press that um, that Tesla have won that, mm-hmm. and that some the, the the Transport Authority says that they are under a contractual obligation to use the postal service, and if the work won't won't do it in support of Tesla's mechanics who want union recognition, then the authority says there's not much they can do about it. Well, the court says they have to. Because the mechanics are on strike and, and so the postal workers yeah. are acting in sympathy with in, them. Acting in sympathy and again, this is a, a union that, um, you know, this is a part of this wider picture of Tesla's um, preference not to recognise unions, to negotiate with them, um, and which which is reflected in their, their practices all around the world. Absolutely. Uh, another strike, this is Gucci. Yes, I know. Um, so Gucci's, um, some of their, their, their design uh, staff are being, they want to move them from Rome to Milan. Um, and the staff saying, well, you know, this is in effect, they argue, a, a kind of covert collective dismissal. Um, Gucci are denying this, but um, but a, a strike, it's not a massive strike, it must be said, it's 50 or so workers, but it's still quite a, a um, quite, quite a deal to see it coming at a, um, a name like Gucci. They are, um, um, they're on strike to um, try and get them, ensure that they can stay where they are in Rome. And what's, what's the reason behind the move? Why, why do they want to relocate? them that um, they haven't specified it in, in the reports I've seen I have to say but um, uh, um, they want them well they want them involved more collaborating more closely with other strategic functions of the company 
Right, so right. They say. Now, let's go to the story in the FT. And this is about exports to Russia going via Turkey. Yes, this is stuff that's sensitive, um, stuff that, uh, that, that could be of use to the Russian military. So the things that the FT is talking about specifically include microchips, communications equipment, parts like telescopic sites, which obviously um, the... Uh, the, the NATO countries and and others who support Ukraine in the conflict do not want Russia getting hold of. Um, Turkey's long, which is a NATO member, has long been uh, a route by which goods do find their way into Russia. Um, one really striking thing, though, that the um, the FT report has found has been um, a real surge in sensitive goods going via intermediaries um, between Turkey and Russia. So these are some former Soviet republics, um, including um, Azerbaijan, um, uh, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Georgia. Um, And one really striking thing they've found is by looking at some of the um, the customs data, they've found that um, a big surge in some of these sensitive goods being declared... Uh, by the exporters is going from Turkey to these other former Soviet states. But um, but much, much lev- lower levels of the same goods arriving in those states. So the obvious question is, where on earth are they going? And mm. the FT have got some analysts saying, well, look, it's, it's frankly obvious they're going to Russia. And so Turkey is, is in absolute violation of various sanctions. Well, it certainly looks like that. And the FT, another angle on this story, is that, um, is that there's a US Treasury, senior US Treasury official going to Turkey, um, not for the first time, to, to try and press them to, um, to, 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 to do more to stop these kind of um, transshipments taking place. Is Turkey listening? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Turkey does have a long history of of relatively close relations with Russia, so I'm sure they'll listen how cooperative they will will be. Another question. Yeah, absolutely. Now, let's turn to Argentina, because this is such an interesting Mm. economic story. The president-elect, Millet, uh, is in the US, but he has some very odd economic ideas. Tell us more. Well, the, the signature one of his um, of his campaign was dollarization to replace the Argentine peso with the US dollar. Wouldn't be the first time that a country has done that. There are half a dozen or so, um, including some in Latin America, Ecuador, El Salvador, Panama, that have essentially, with the partial exception of, of, of coins in Panama, um, they have replaced their own currencies. The idea behind it um, is to deal with Argentina's chronic inflation problem. Essentially, it means that it's, if not quite impossible, certainly very much harder for governments to finance their spending by, um, by, um, through the central bank, which is, uh, which has been at the core of Argentina's long running inflation problem. Um, he's going to be talking to the IMF about this. Um, it's not the first time it's been suggested in relation to Argentina. Back in the right at the end of the 20th century, um, the Menem government was considering it. They went for a slightly watered down version of it called a currency board, where you still have pesos. Um, the 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 problem, in a sense, was that it's relatively easy to get out of that because when things got difficult um, 10 or so years later, it was abandoned and we had a, an enormous financial crisis. But uh, uh, Mr Millet's problem, I think, is that um, 
is that simply replacing your currency um, certainly can deal with the inflation problem, and it certainly has did produce a dramatic reduction in inflation in some of those other countries I mentioned. Um, it's not really a substitute for getting on top of Argentina's other long-running economic problems, like sorting out the government finances. Um, and he is going to have a hard time getting the support he needs in Congress and perhaps among the Argentine people. I mean, one thing they're, 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 that they're constantly pressed to do is to cut on the back on the very dramatic and inefficient energy subsidies that Argentina spends a lot of money on. Well, 90% of the population benefit from that. Will they be happy? Probably not. <laughs> Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Andrew Walker there. And this is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. And finally, a brand new issue of Monocle magazine is out this week. And within it, you'll find our annual soft power survey featuring the countries that have mastered the subtler arts of global influence and diplomacy. All this week on The Globalist, we're counting down to the nation that took the prize number one spot. Switzerland went up in the ranking and we've put it in third position. Monocle's Grace Charlton tells us why. After a rocky start, Europe's master of mediation are reclaiming their rep for sensible diplomacy. Switzerland has faced plenty of challenges over the past year, as well as opportunities to demonstrate its trademark stoicism. For a nation that prides itself on its stability and banking prowess, the collapse of Credit Suisse in March caused blushes before the bank's state-orchestrated takeover by UBS. A miscount of votes in October's federal election further dented the country's reputation for meticulousness. The final results showed a swing to the far right. Beyond its borders, there were questions around Switzerland's neutrality after it mirrored EU sanctions against Russia. But as the Israel-Hamas conflict developed, it climbed back on defence, though it voted in favour of a ceasefire at the UN General Assembly in October. Switzerland also contributed to getting humanitarian aid into Syria after an earthquake last February. In 2024, it will be in its second and final year as a non-permanent member of the UN Security Council, where it will be asked to arbitrate between permanent members China, France, Russia, the UK and the US. On a lighter note, could tennis player Dominic Stricker be a replacement for soft power behemoth Roger Federer? His win at the US Open against Greece's Stefanos Tsitsipas catapulted him to the top of the list for sporting treasure status. Swiss service also deserves a mention. The country exports some of the world's best GMs and service staff as alumni of hospitality schools such as the EHL Hospitality College in Lausanne. There's a culture of paying people fairly for work that's sniffed at in other countries and offering incentives to build rewarding retail and hospitality businesses too. Wherever your favourite waiter or concierge hails from, there's a fair chance that their manners were polished in Switzerland. Monocle comment. Good. At a time of ideological and geopolitical fracture, Switzerland's long-held position of neutrality could make it a vital arbiter in global disputes. Bad. Many countries have had a challenging 2023, but Switzerland's reputation for competence, especially in finance, took an unexpected bump. For Monocle Radio, I'm Grace Charlton.
Thank you, Grace. And do stay tuned to The Globalist throughout the week to hear where your nation ranks in the soft power survey. And get the December-January issue of Monocle magazine available at all good newsstands from Thursday onwards. And that's all for this programme. Thanks to our producers, Vincent McAvinney and Emma Searle, our researchers, Monica Lillis and Harrison Warlock, and our studio manager, Steph Chungu. The headlines are on the way. The briefing is live at midday in London and The Globalist returns at the same time tomorrow. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening.